0: Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching For It. Way back two and a half thousand years ago, sometime around the 6th century BC, there lived a prince called Siddhartha Gautama. Siddhartha lived in northern India, and he grew up a real privileged kid. He was given anything he could ever want, but he was pretty sheltered too. Siddhartha's father wanted to protect his son from the horrors of the world. Siddhartha was a prince, he didn't need to see that. So all the pain of the outside world, the suffering, the death, was all a complete mystery to Siddhartha. His universe lined within the palace walls. There was no pain there. Siddhartha lived this way into adulthood, but everything changed on a fateful road trip at the age of 29. He left the palace riding high on his chariot, but was horrified at what he discovered in the real world. See, Siddhartha saw a diseased man, but having been sheltered in his private cotton ball from any kind of pain, suffering... Siddhartha literally didn't know what he was seeing. His driver explained to him, this Siddhartha is a diseased man, this is what happens when you grow old and fall ill. And the driver did the same when Siddhartha saw a corpse and an ascetic too. Siddhartha's whole conception of life changed at this point. He couldn't just go back to his palace and stick his head in the sand with all these horrors just beyond his peripheral vision. He wanted answers. So Siddhartha left his wife and son behind to figure out what it all meant and how to cope with the realities of life. He spent years wandering India as an ascetic, rejecting the pleasures of life, practicing meditation and trying to discover if there was something more out there. And it was at the age of 35, sat under the Bodhi tree, the site of which you can actually visit today, that Siddhartha had his great revelation. He became enlightened to the true nature of human life. He saw the suffering of the world, but also how to overcome it. And so goes the Buddhist tradition. Siddhartha Gautama become who we now know as the Buddha. I must admit, prior to researching this episode, besides some vague ideas about Buddhists having this state of mind where they can overcome suffering, this vision of tranquil Buddhist monks perched upon a mountaintop, I didn't know too much about what Buddhists actually believe in. And I was interested to learn that the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was really just a man. There's no God involved in Buddhism, no higher force or life essence to direct our life towards. It just tells us how we, as humans, can best live our lives in this world. You might see certain traditions that some Buddhists practice, maybe bowing before statues of the Buddha in temples, setting up shrines with offerings. But my understanding is that these kinds of practices aren't essential to Buddhism. Some Buddhists might find them a useful tool to help them on their way, but they're not necessary to reach enlightenment. You don't need to worship or pledge your existence to some higher being to be a Buddhist. To me, reading about Buddhism, I kind of felt that it would be just as accurate to refer to Buddhism as a philosophy as it is to talk about Buddhism as a religion. I mean, what Buddhism is all about is trying to decode the nature of human life, what it is to be a human, and to outline the path to live our best possible lives on this planet. And you know, we looked at Sartre's existentialism a couple of episodes ago, and Camus a bit earlier as well, and both of these guys have the same kind of project, to figure out how to best live our lives. But you wouldn't call existentialism a religion, it's a philosophy. But however you want to categorise Buddhism in your head is probably besides the point, really. I mean, Buddhism is what it is, whether you call it a religion or a philosophy. And in this episode, we're going to try and pin down exactly what Buddhism is saying, and see if it really does offer us a path to enlightenment. I've actually been really excited with this episode because of all the themes we looked at throughout this podcast to date, some of the ideas contained within Buddhism probably come closest to the idea of IT that I had when I created this podcast. In particular, Buddhists talk about attaining enlightenment and reaching a state of nirvana where we eliminate all of our desires and our suffering and kind of live in this blissful tranquility. And what particularly appeals to me about the Buddhist notion of IT, as it were, is that it doesn't rely on any metaphysical frills. We don't need to believe in any kind of higher power or our faith in any unknowable ideas. Buddhist enlightenment is all about understanding human life, the way that life works from our own experience. And once we see the true nature of human existence, and we don't need faith here, just knowledge of our own condition, we see the path to nirvana, to bliss. That's more or less what we'll be looking at in this episode, The insights buddhism gives us into the nature of human life and ultimately how to reach nirvana i do just want to add as a kind of disclaimer before we begin though that buddhism is a religion that's been around for over two and a half thousand years so it's had more than enough time to develop loads of different offshoots different traditions who will follow different practices and each of these buddhist traditions comes with its own system of thought so i'm not going to be able to cover literally everything in this episode I'll try to remain as agnostic as possible towards the different traditions for the sake of this episode, but just to make the point now, I can't guarantee that every Buddhist from every tradition will necessarily agree with every point I make. But if you do find any of the thoughts we look at compelling though, I wouldn't be daunted by what really is a plethora of Buddhist literature and schools of thought out there. There are some really well-written and easily digestible books. I'd highly recommend the ones I read for this episode, which you can find on the recommended reading page on www.searchingforit.org. I'll follow today's episode up as well next month, though, with, uh, with another episode on Buddhism, and specifically meditation and mindfulness within Buddhism. But if the demand's there, I'd be more than happy to go into a bit more depth in any of these themes in future episodes, so don't be afraid to drop me an email if that's something you'd like. But for now, let's get started with today's episode, with a philosophy underpinning Buddhism, the nature of human life, and how to make the best of it. As I've said, there's so much we could talk about here, but right at the heart of Buddhist philosophy is a set of beliefs about the human condition and what we can do about it that Buddhists know as the Four Noble Truths. Now, if I'm being completely honest, one thing I found a little overwhelming researching about Buddhism was the sheer number of lists that Buddhists have to summarise their philosophy. I mean, as well as the Four Noble Truths, you've got the Five Aggregates, the Noble Eightfold Path, which itself is broken down into a threefold division, and gets pretty tricky to keep track of it all. Don't worry, we're not going to look at all of those lists today. It would get pretty confusing pretty quickly. But having said that, the Four Noble Truths themselves, I really think, are at the essence of Buddhism. They're all simple enough to digest, and and in fact, when the Buddha experienced that moment of enlightenment, meditating under the body tree, it was the Four Noble Truths that appeared to him and showed him the way to Nirvana. So with that in mind, what were these truths and how can they deliver us to enlightenment? We'll go over these fully in just a moment, but first just to give a general idea of where we're going to be going, the first noble truth basically says that life is defined by suffering, the second identifies desire as the root cause of suffering, the third noble truth points out that desire and suffering can actually be overcome, and the fourth noble truth identifies exactly how to do so. But hold up, you might want to say, life being reduced to suffering, rejecting all kinds of desire to reach this nirvana, it might not sound very attractive at first glance. Well, let's take each noble truth one by one to see where Buddhists are really coming from here. Because, bear in mind, these thoughts might sound a little alien, because Buddhism as a system of thought developed completely separately from Western thought. It can be difficult enough to unpick the ideas of ancient Western thinkers, the likes of Aristotle, Plato, the pre-Socratic philosophers, even though their philosophies paved the direct route to the Western worldview today. So when we look at Buddhism, which, as I say, developed separately from Western thinkers until at least the 1800s, besides the occasional intersections, if you're not especially familiar with Eastern cultures, it requires really opening yourself up to an entirely different worldview to see the world as the Buddha did. So, first of all, is this idea that human life is, at its essence, suffering. This is the first noble truth. I think it's worth clarifying here, though. What this noble truth actually says is that life is dukkha. I'm going to assume that most of you listening to this episode probably don't speak Sanskrit. But this word dukkha, traditionally it's been translated to suffering. But I think it's generally recognised now that that's not a very precise translation. I mean, suffering brings up thoughts of pain, of something really horrible happening to us, but it's pretty clear we don't spend our lives in that kind of state. I mean, I hope you're not suffering too much listening to this podcast. I wouldn't say I'm suffering when I'm having a warm bath or listening to The Grateful Dead. It doesn't seem that we're in a constant state of suffering, as it were. Really, what we mean by dukkha is that life is in some sense unsatisfactory. Life just doesn't live up to our expectations and Things aren't as perfect as we'd like them to be. I mean, there's the obvious sense that we mentioned a moment ago that sometimes we really are suffering, sometimes we're genuinely in pain and things go really bad for us. But even when things are going well, and this is a pretty similar thought that we looked at in the last antinatalism episode any pleasurable experiences we might have, any instances of happiness, are only ever temporary. As people, we're naturally driven to want things, to strive for things, to ride the hedonic treadmill whatever we grasp we'll never grasp it with permanence we buy the nice watch great we feel like the bee's knees when we wear it out that night maybe the next few times too but that great feeling it's not going to be there the 10th the 20th times we put it on and maybe you'll set yourself some goal you want to learn a new language this year maybe you want a promotion and of course it'll feel great when you've done it but that feeling will pass Eventually, every time, we'll fall back to that familiar old position of wanting more, of striving for more, desiring to feel differently to how we do feel. So that's what's going on here in the First Noble Truth. The idea that life is just not quite right. We might not be in an intense state of suffering, but I'm sure for an awful lot of us, things aren't quite what they could be or what we'd hope they would be. We all do suffer sometimes. We all desire things we can't have or that we don't quite have, we all have momentary pleasures that eventually fade. Nobody's well and truly content with everything that life has to offer. But there's a reason for that, and this is where the second noble truth comes in. There's a reason why our lives are permeated by dukkha, and the reason is desire, or depending on the translation, maybe craving or thirst. I mean, think about it. Any instance of dukkha where things aren't quite right in your life. Maybe a car cut you off on the way to work this morning. The obvious reaction would be to say gosh, and that's annoying, what a jerk. But the only fact of the situation is that he cut you off. There's nothing inherently annoying about the situation. Take away your desire to get to work on time and your expectation that the other driver would have driven safely, and there's nothing there to annoy you anymore, no need to feel unsatisfactory. A more tricky example might be pain. Imagine you're having a horrible headache and it's ruining your day. No Buddhist is going to say that the pain is a good thing and they don't say you can just choose not to feel the pain. But the problem for the Buddha isn't the feeling of pain per se. It's the aversion we feel to pain, the tension we produce as our mind and our body stiffens up and the desire we have to rid ourselves of the pain. I mean, if we were free of that desire, if the headache stayed but we just accepted it, maybe there's a sense in which we wouldn't be suffering at all. The key insight here for buddhists is that desire lies at the origin of dukkha, of our lives unsatisfactoriness which sounds really weird when i say it but i've double checked and unsatisfactoriness is definitely a word the buddhists use life isn't unsatisfactory in and of itself life is unsatisfactory in relation to the desires and expectations we have for our own lives the unsatisfactoriness comes from within so with no desire, no expectations, and no clinging to things, there would be nothing to disappoint our expectations, no desires to crush, and nothing to feel unsatisfactory. And this is essentially the insight given by the third noble truth. There is freedom from dukkha, and this freedom lies in the abandonment of desire. Don't get me wrong though, I don't think Buddhists would necessarily say that we have to abandon all desire, I mean, some desire can only be a good thing, I mean, technically we're going to have to desire to be rid of desire for starters. What I think the Buddha really meant when he said that transcending dukkha lies in ridding ourselves of desire, is that we should have the right desires rather than no desires at all. The kind of desires we'll want to be rid of are those that cause us to cling to certain people or to certain objects, desires to have things, to create our world and make it just right. Those kind of desires aren't going to bring us to enlightenment because things will never be quite right, or even if they are, they won't stay right for very long. What we need to be truly content is, well, to be content with however things turn out. I mentioned earlier that the Buddhist system of thought is radically different to that which most of us are probably used to, and a world without desire couldn't be further from our 21st century reality. I mean... There's no more desiring for iPhones, Big Macs, the latest Call of Duty. It's a radically different proposition, and given that following this path involves standing firmly against our natural inclinations, it might not look very attractive. It might even feel like abandoning desire is abandoning what gives our lives colour. I mean, certain objects of desire, like the attachment we have to our loved ones, particularly in romantic love, to your husband, your wife... The desire we have to live fulfilling lives and have careers that make a difference, to raise a family, these don't seem like particularly nefarious desires. It doesn't seem like they make our lives unsatisfactory. Well, I think the Buddhist line of response would be to point out that rejecting desire doesn't mean we can't actually have these things. In fact, we can still have them, and we might even be able to appreciate them even more fully. Take eating a cake, for example. When we're caught up in the world of desire, we feel hungry and discontent. Only eating that cake will make us content. But when we eat the cake, we're not fully present. We're thinking, man, I'd like another slice, or, oh gosh, this cake is going to make me fat. Maybe we're on our phone or watching TV and not even noticing we're eating the cake. We're not enjoying it fully. But when we're in this state beyond desire, we can enjoy the cake in the present without wanting more or comparing it to other cakes, we can enjoy the cake for what it is, and you might want to say our enjoyment of these kinds of things is only heightened by leaving desire behind us. Buddhist monks and those who attain nirvana don't just sit around blankly staring at the wall devoid of all experience. They enjoy life fully because they're not caught up in this cycle of chasing desire after desire. They're not distracting themselves with alcohol and shopping and TV. They're living and appreciating life in the moment for what it is, with Maybe be a level of depth that we don't reach when we're stuck in the cycle of desire. So let's recap, we've got this far. We've seen that life is dukkha, unsatisfactory. We've seen that desire and craving is at the heart of dukkha, And we've seen that we can transcend dukkha by leaving desire behind us. But the big question, how we can actually do this, is what the final fourth noble truth tells us. Well, if we're going to leave dukkha and desire behind us, There's one crucial thing the Buddha says we'll need in our toolbox, and that's wisdom. But this doesn't mean, you know, the kind of wisdom like being an old, wise sage sat atop a mountain, giving everyone cryptic answers like some kind of oracle. Really, what wisdom means here is understanding life, the insidious nature of Dukkha, in the kind of way we've spoken about throughout the first three noble truths. Because for the Buddha, while it's desire that's at the root of Dukkha, and it's desire we need to rid ourselves to be free of dukkha. there's a reason why we desire and cling to things, and that reason is a lack of wisdom on our end. It's an ignorance we share as to the true nature of reality. We don't just follow the cycle of desire because that's the way humans are. I mean, it is the way humans are, but it doesn't need to be this way. Essentially, we fall into the trap of dukkha and desire because we're making two different mistakes. The first mistake, the first ignorance, is the obvious one. We wrongly think that the philosophy of what if, what if I had that car, what if I had that house, will bring us happiness. We wrongly think that chasing desires will make us happy. But there's another mistake we make that goes deeper than that. Let's play the devil's advocate and say, well, isn't there just a chance we could win, that we could get everything we desire for, and? If so, wouldn't that bring us happiness, contentment? If we say this, there's another really fundamental ignorance here according to the Buddha, and it's our use of the word I. I'll get all these nice things, I'll be made happy. No, according to Buddhism, and this really is one of the key insights, there is no such thing as the I, no such thing as the self. So desiring things for ourselves is just one big error in the first place. To get this point across, think about what it means to have an I. Not the thing in your head that helps you see, an I in the terms of self, a set identity. What is this thing that keeps you you over time? There are lots of things we might associate with ourselves, maybe our body, our thoughts, our ability to be conscious of our thoughts and our experiences, but none of these things have any kind of constancy or permanence. None of them can be the self that we think they are. You know, our body's changing all the time. 98% of the atoms in our body are recycled every year. The unchanging sense of self can't be within our body because there's nothing stable there. And the same applies to our thoughts and our consciousness as well. They're changing minute by minute, in in fact moment by moment. Wherever we look within ourselves, all we find are a succession of changing experiences, a a bundle of sensations, but no lasting self at the centre of it. The Buddha identifies five components within ourselves that include these sorts of things, you know, the body, consciousness, etc. And he thinks that when you see yourselves clearly enough, you see that that's all there is to it. All you are are these group of components and ever-changing ebb and flow of thoughts and experiences. And this ego we have, all it is is just a great construct. Who knows why? Maybe it served some evolutionary purpose, but it doesn't exist. So the point here is that we're making a mistake whenever we talk about the I who desires, the I who wants this or loves that. All we are, as I say, is a group of constantly changing components with no I at the centre of it. All of this is to say, going back to the path away from Dukkha and desire, is that we first need to rid ourselves of this illusory sense of I. We need to recognise that our conception of identity is built upon an illusion. Because once we realise this, we realise there's really no point in our egoistic thoughts, our striving to make ourselves great and to seize and consume everything the world has to offer, because there's no self at the centre of it all to reap those rewards. It's all built upon an illusion. An illusion that desire will make us happy, and an illusion that there even is a self to be made happy in the first place. And once we know this, when we truly know and see this truth, We've overcome ignorance, and the weight of desire comes crashing down. Reaching this stage isn't supposed to be an easy feat for the Buddhist, though. And knowing this truth, really knowing it, isn't supposed to be something you can attain just by listening to this podcast or reading a book on Buddhism. But it might be a good start. The path to enlightenment is long, it requires a lot of discipline, and you've got to really retrain your mind and your body, at least to the extent I can use the word you're here, To live in a way that's in accordance with wisdom, in accordance with, essentially, the way things really are. To come to really know these truths, to attain wisdom and enlightenment, there are a few tools at our disposal that can help us along. We haven't spoken about meditation yet, which is obviously a really big part of Buddhism, and what meditation is useful for is heightening our awareness of the world, which allows us to see the world as it really is and come to these kinds of realisations. That's something we'll come to look at more specifically in the next episode. But more broadly, there's a path that the Buddha sets out for us, whereby we can come across these kinds of realisations, and this path is called the Middle Way, or the Eightfold Noble Path. It's called the Middle Way for a reason, because it's the path between two extremes on either side. Obviously, as we've spoken about, on the one hand we want to avoid excessive desire, We want to live in a state of greater contentment with what the world has to offer. But on the other side, we don't want to stray too close to self-renunciation either, by which I mean rejecting life altogether. We don't want to shove all of our desires under the carpet and just pretend they're not there anymore. All this will do is push our desires under the surface where they continue to thrive and then bite back even stronger than before. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, Think of any kind of repression, sexual repression is an example that's often talked about, where people repress some aspect of their sexuality, they pretend it's not there anymore. Everyone knows that's not a healthy way of dealing with something inside you that you don't like, whether in the context of sexuality or wherever. When I was reading about this aspect of Buddhism, it really clicked in my head, because something I've struggled with myself in a slightly different context are these recurring thought patterns that keep cycling through my mind, Just mundane stuff like to-do lists. But when these patterns arise, they become obsessive, and I literally have to sit for a few minutes and reconcile them in my mind before I can go about doing something else. And even then, they'll often come back pretty soon after. Well, I consulted good old Google on how to deal with this, and I read that a method doctors will often recommend involves actively bringing attention to these thoughts or thought patterns. You think about them, you really analyse them, what they feel like and try to think about them as an observer of your own mind, detached from the thoughts, without any anxiety or negative feelings towards them. This actually worked pretty well for me. After a while, they began to subside, because I was processing them healthily, and not hiding them in some dark closet in my mind where they'll just tumble out a bit later. And the same applies here. We're not going to overcome desire by repressing our desires. We can't just say to ourselves, no, desiring causes me to suffer i choose not to want that chocolate cake anymore you're still gonna want that chocolate cake so it just becomes an internal battle between your will in either direction and even if you're able to stave off that temptation at first it's not a sustainable victory at, at some point your cave what we want is the midpoint between excess desire and renunciation we want to avoid those indulgences that we know will bring us suffering but also we need to be fully aware of, and not just deny, those desires we do have. And by living in this way, in accordance with wisdom as it were, in accordance with the true nature of reality, eventually this wisdom will grow and flourish within ourselves. Our understanding of our existence will grow, and overcoming our desires and dukkha will flow more naturally. I mentioned a moment ago that as part of following this middle way, the Buddha also prescribes a noble eightfold path for us to follow. Well, I also mentioned earlier that within Buddhist philosophy, it's easy to get bogged down in list after Buddhist list, so I'm not going to go through every component of this noble eightfold path. But if you want to learn more about it, there's a great book on this topic that I put on the recommended reading page. But broadly, what this eightfold path is all about is, again, living in such a way that we can cultivate this wisdom and abandon the ignorances that keep us tied down in a life of dukkha and eventually proceed towards enlightenment for anyone with a background in philosophy who maybe has any experience with aristotelian ethics it works pretty similar in so far as the eightfold path is all about acting in the right way at the right time towards the right people etc it involves acting in accordance with wisdom in order that we gradually cultivate this wisdom within ourselves if we act in the way that the wise person would, have, eventually we we'll become that wise person ourselves. So, you know, one of the prongs of this eightfold path is right speech, part of which involves abstaining from lying. And this isn't just because lying is morally wrong, but it's also to cultivate within ourselves a commitment to the truth, rather than a commitment to deceit, so that we can continue working towards wisdom. And equally, another part of this path is right action which is avoiding harming other people. Again, not just because harming other people is wrong in Buddhist philosophy, which it is, but also because harming others and pursuing greed is only going to reinforce the ego. It will only reinforce this sense of self within us, which of course is an ignorance, and it will only add fuel to the cycle of desire and ultimately lead us away from wisdom. So, finally then, we've got these realisations, we've overcome our ignorance, we've attained wisdom, we've attained enlightenment. Well, once we've done this and we've overcome desire and dukkha, what does this look like? What's the end point, the it, the Buddhists are trying to achieve here? Well, this end point is what the Buddha called Nirvana. I think maybe a bit like the psychedelic experience that we looked at in episodes 5 and 6, Nirvana is often described as being essentially beyond words, which... Isn't too helpful for this podcast. It's described as being so far removed from ordinary human experience that we simply don't have the language to express what it's like to live in nirvana, and even if the language did exist, those of us who haven't found nirvana wouldn't be able to comprehend what those words meant. But to make our best stab at what nirvana is, a metaphor that's often banded around is that reaching nirvana is like the extinction of the flame of desire. It just goes out and When we understand completely the true nature of things, that restless burning, that craving within us simply disappears. And not only does your desire disappear, but your attachment to certain things goes with it too. So your egoistic attachment to your loved ones, for example, your relationships fuelled by mutual self-interest and making each other happy, they're replaced by an impartial love directed at all living creatures. Our love no longer comes with conditions and relationships with certain expectations, Our love is radiated out to everyone unconditionally. I've read that this realisation is something that can actually just be momentary, like an epiphany. Something clicks and you just know. And when you do, as I say, the flame of desire is extinguished, and it's replaced by this blissful, tranquil state of existence. You might still experience pain, bad things might happen to you, but that's the end of the problem. The pain won't be accompanied by tension, aversion or even suffering, because you've risen above it. What particularly intrigues me about this concept, going back to what I said at the beginning of this episode, is that there's no emphasis on faith here. You don't need to give yourself up to a higher being to attain nirvana. I mean, you don't really need to do anything at all. The path to nirvana isn't like the 12-step recovery program from addiction, where you tick the boxes down the list until you ultimately cure yourself from addiction. The emphasis here is just on knowing how things really are, and the responsibility is squarely on ourselves to just observe ourselves, observe the world, become mindful of our experiences, and one day we'll see. There's no annihilation of the self, nothing's killed in the process other than the sense of self which is an illusion anyway. You just realise the way things really are, and desire, suffering, dukkha, all melts away and and all we're left with is pure contentment. Next month, we'll go into a lot more detail about some of the practicalities of attaining nirvana. Specifically, we'll look at Buddhist meditation and mindfulness, and how that can help us along the path. Until then, if you enjoyed today's episode, it'd be great if you could leave a rating and a review if your podcast app of choice allows you to do so. Or if you'd like to help keep the show going, you can pledge your support on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. You can find searching for it on Facebook and Instagram, where I'll keep you updated about February's episode, which will land on February the 3rd, the first Monday of February. And until then, thanks for listening.